One of the things that has come out of my research is the importance of understanding the the connections and, and also the disconnect between the international responses to corruption, and that includes you know, understandings of corruption, and how they relate to people on the ground. So a part of my work is really trying to understand the legitimacy of anti-corruption efforts in a place like Papua New Guinea. Hello and welcome to Kickback, the anti-corruption podcast. My name is Dan Huff uh, from the University of Sussex in the UK. Today, going to be talking about part of the world that doesn't generally get that much attention, and that is the Pacific Islands, and, and particularly um, one part of that territory. And I'm doing that with someone who knows that area better than most, and that's Dr. Grant Walton. He's Associate Professor of the Development Policy Centre at the Crawford School in ANU in Canberra in Australia. And he's done a considerable amount of work on this area and the corruption challenges that people there face. So, hi, Grant, how are you? Good, thanks, Dan. How's yourself? Battling on, yeah, battling on. Summer here in the UK is uh, is upon us. I guess it's a bit different with you. You're in Canberra, right? So it's getting a bit colder. That's right. I rode in um, on my bike this morning, and it was uh, it was freezing for our standards, but um, but we soldier on. That's okay. Yeah, we have no choice. Do we have no choice? Good, good. So, Grant, how did you find your way to looking at corruption in Papua New Guinea? I've got little doubt that there's quite a lot of it about, but how does someone uh, um, from Canberra end up making this one of their specialisms? Yeah, thanks. It's a it's a good question. Look, uh, I started out in Papua New Guinea doing a, a research project on a mine located about a hundred kilometres north of the capital, Tolokuma Gold Mine, and I did that as a part of my master's thesis. And I really loved it. I really enjoyed going up there and and talking with people and and learning more about the country. And I, and I wanted to do that as a PhD. But in the interim, I got sent to Afghanistan for for work, uh, working for a, an NGO there. And I, while I was in Afghanistan, it was really apparent that people were talking a lot about corruption and about how corruption was undermining state building efforts and i thought look that's that's you know it's, it's such a, an interesting topic to to look at and i and i couldn't help but thinking back to my time in png where most people live in rural areas so um, about 85 percent of the population live in rural areas and have got very different customs and 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 uh, you know kind of uh, political alignments um which which I thought would, would would mean having a look at the way in which people understood corruption might be a really interesting PhD topic. So I, I went back to Australia and I started my PhD and that was the, the focus of my PhD. I was looking at how people in Papua New Guinea understand what corruption is and I compared those views to, to Western uh, understandings of corruption. And, and the reason I was interested in that in in, um, in the context of, of PNG was also like Afghanistan, there was, there's a great deal of concern about corruption in Papua New Guinea. So, so a recent survey showed that over 90% said that corruption was a big 
problem in the government. And in doesn't surveys... Think percent were thinking, doesn't it? Because do they think it's all fine? <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, well uh, um, no, it's a good question. I think that... Um, yeah, there are probably people that are, that are that are less worried about it than than others. Certainly, various surveys have found that that you know extremely high levels of concern about corruption. To give you a, kind of a sense of of where PNG sits in terms of international indicators, it's it's ranked at the moment about 130 out of 180 countries on the corruption perceptions index, and according to data from the worldwide governance indicators from the the Pacific Island countries that we have data for, it's got the least control of corruption in the region. So there are really big concerns about corruption. And you talk about to the donor community, there's lots of concerns in the donor community about where money goes in, in PNG and the problem with the corruption and that leading to social and economic problems. But there were at the time that I started my PhD, there was very little research in terms of how ordinary citizens understood what it was. And that's where my research started. And I've been really doing this now for about 15 years, I, I guess now, um, after I've finished my PhD, I continued on doing doing research on the issue because there's so much to learn and understand about it. And that, I mean, there's, there's so many things I could, I could sort of poke around with there. That it's, it's an interesting story, PNG, but can you, can you just give us a feel for how PNG is organised politically? You know, what, 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 is it a democracy? If so, what sort of democracy is it? If I, if I remember this rightly, King Charles III has a role to play here somewhere, doesn't he? Is, is that right? So, yeah, PNG is a, a unicameral democracy. So mm. it um, is one of the few developing countries that has that has continued an official democratic um, system of government since its independence. So a number of developing countries that that became independent, particularly in the in, in the fifties and sixties, um, haven't been able to maintain democracy during that time. Now it's it is democratic, but it is also it's a flawed democracy. Uh, it's it, the patronage systems in PNG between politicians and voters are, are very strong. They've been trying to push for political parties in um, in in the country, but but they've made very little inroads in that. So a lot of the the politics is very much centered around the individual MP. You know, it's very much, you know, what is called big man politics. So this is coming from the idea of, the, you know, in a traditional society in some parts of the country, at least, uh, leaders um, were known as big men. And they had really good oratory skills. They distributed resources and those types of things to their followers. And this kind of model of, of leadership has come into uh, the modern day political scene. In Papua New Guinea um, has a uh, has a, a system of elections that is often fraught. It's often filled with accus um, uh, with accusations of corruption and, and and violence. And for some people who have been tracking elections in PNG, the most recent uh, election was arguably the, the the most violent that we've seen. So whilst it is a democracy. It um, it certainly has it certainly has its challenges. It was also PNG. I mean, just I suppose by way of background, uh, was administered by the Australian government uh, since uh, the the late 18, 1880s, and 
it uh, it was divided up into two kind of areas: the south, where which Australia administered, and the north, which, where the Germans administered. And then in 1914, after the uh, at the start of the First World War, those two separate sections of the country, New Guinea in the north and Papua in the south, came together under Australian administration, and the PNG got its independence in 1975. So it's um, it's 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 a Politically, it's um, yeah, it bows a country that has got some of the same sorts of characteristics as as countries that you might see in in parts of Africa, but it does cling to this um, to to this idea of democracy, even though that's challenged. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting story, and of course, there's a there's, there's a colonial story there as well. But you know, as ever, what one with twists and turns. And if I've got this right, it's still officially a Commonwealth realm, isn't it? Where the, where the, the UK monarch for for you talk about historical legacies um he's still formally the head of state but um and i don't think he has too much to do with the day-to-day running of affairs now the anti-corruption landscape in in png then how has that developed is i guess the authorities have generally been quite reactive right and, and have reacted to problems that have developed around them or has there been anything approaching an anti-corruption strategy in png Look, there is an anti-corruption strategy in PNG, and there have been some things that uh, the, the current government has been pointing to, to to show that it's it's serious about addressing corruption. So we've had a newly uh, introduced independent commission against uh, corruption. So there's an ICAC in, in PNG. They've just appointed, they've just named the commissioners that will be heading that up, and that will be headed up by two Australians and a New Zealander. So and is that so, modelled on, on any other anti-corruption institution elsewhere? I mean, the ICAC in Hong Kong is often a, a favoured model of emulation, or, or, or is it is it a pretty unique beast? Look, it's it's looking at both the public and and the private sectors. It's got investigation and prosecutionary powers. Um, mm-hmm. So it is it you know it, it 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 is set up to to investigate corruption, to to to, to go after those who are allegedly um, corrupt, and and so the the model itself you know, went through a number of different iterations and 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 they've landed on a, a model that that looks relatively good on paper. And the prob the, the problem is around its operation. It's it, it it's got a, a kind of a, a caretaker team engaged at the moment waiting for the commissioners to 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 come on board. But there are many concerns that people in the country have about how effective it might be. And of course, whilst it, it is just a, a very embryonic phase, the government's basically saying, look, if there are any concerns about corruption, don't worry, the ICAC will deal with it. Um, it doesn't have a lot of um, funding available to it at the moment, and it's it's really starting up. So there are concerns of, um, uh, about the ability for the ICAC to respond to this huge expectation, huge expectation that has been placed on it by politicians, by the public, to actually go after those who are involved in corruption and bring them to justice. Uh, that does not, um, that seems to be a, you know, a very uncertain uh, undertaking at the moment. We've, we've seen in, in Papua New Guinea, we've had a bit of a history of anti-corruption agencies, one in particular task force sweep that was introduced by the then Prime Minister Peter O'Neill in 2014, which was initially successful until it went after O'Neill himself, the Prime yeah. Minister, 
and um, and was shut and effectively shut down. So it's a it's a it's a fraught space, and and I think we're all holding our breath to see just how well this new institution responds to these very big expectations placed on it. I do worry just a little bit when I hear those words, high expectations and not a lot of funding. That 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 mixture tends to make me think, oh dear, this the, I, I can see why this might end up being being rather a challenge. But I guess I guess we will we will see. Now, in terms of your research, that one of the parts I always found most fascinating reading your work, Graham, was when you talked in effect about the dangers of anti-corruption about the, the, the what could go wrong if you get anti-corruption wrong or if you try and implement ideas that are just not the right ideas at the right time in the right place. And you use PNG as an example of, of where that might be happening, right? Yeah, look, that's, that's right. So I suppose it, one of the things that has come out of my research is this, it's, it's just the importance of understanding the the connections and also the disconnect between you know the the international um, responses to corruption and that includes uh, you know, understandings of corruption and how they how they relate to people on the ground. So a, a part of my work is really trying to understand the legitimacy of anti-corruption efforts in a place like like Papua New Guinea, where issues like culture, like poverty, social norms are, are very different from where models like an ICAC, um, like anti-corruption legislation and the, and, the, and the like have been developed. So, for example, in Papua New Guinea, there are messages that go out you know, across the country that say, look, you know, if you vote for a corrupt politician, then, you know, your community is going to go to hell. Like, the, you know, they've got the poster... Uh, if I could just paint a picture, they got, got a poster on one side, you know, a, a voter voting for the right good politician with his shirt tucked in and, 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 and looking very presentable. And the road after the ballot box goes up kind of into heaven with, you know, nice schools and health facilities and, and, and all the rest of it. And on the other side of the poster, there's, you know, the, the clearly corrupt politician um, and a vote for that corrupt politician leads down kind of into the flames of hell, you know, and uh, with where everything, the, the health facility and, and schools and, and the roads are, are broken and dysfunctional. And my my research has, has shown that actually, you know, a lot of times citizens don't really have much of a choice except, you know, and it is actually quite logical um, to engage in, in corruption and these kind of zero tolerance approaches don't really work in a place like, like Papua New Guinea because the state is often absent, it's often not ex- non-existent, and that imaginary um, non-corrupt politician doesn't, doesn't exist. So people in, 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 in focus groups, for example, um, when, when I did some focus groups um, in, in rural areas, would, t- would tell us that, you know, it's, not, it's, it's, not, it, it's corruption if one person in the community gets bribed by a politician or, or you know, takes some money and doesn't distribute it to the rest of the community. But if everybody benefits from that corruption, then that's, that's fine. It's not, there's, there's no problem, problem at all. And that's because the state you know, doesn't really operate very effectively in those, in those areas. And those insights kind of, you know, have, have been built upon over time. And so one of the ways that we've been trying to test 
how important kind of local community is for people in terms of anti-corruption responses. Myself and, and, and Karen Pfeiffer, uh, a, a very prominent um, anti-corruption academic, uh, we, um, t- we tested some messages, anti-corruption corruption messages in, in PNG. And what we found is that when we emphasise to people that corruption impacts on their communities, they were far more likely to respond to it. They were far more likely to be concerned to um, about about corruption than if we gave them other messages clear around how widespread corruption was, or um, that it's illegal, or even that it's um, it's it, it's against uh, you know religious edicts. So this idea of community is something is often lost in um, anti-corruption efforts. Um, we kind of think of people as uh, quite often as as citizens as a um, first, as opposed to members of a of a community first. And that's, I suppose, where my research has been focusing is to think through some of the implications of people identifying with their community first and foremost. I've got I've got two questions on that, Grant. That sounds really interesting, particularly the research with Karen, who, who's another sort of really prominent scholar in in this area. The people who are creating the posters you know, the good versus evil posters. Now, I, I assume that, that they think the guy that, they're, that, that they want you to support is a good guy, but they must also recognise that, that he, he or she will live in a community that, that, that faces real problems and he or she is going to have to deal with this state that doesn't exist. Um, so do they really believe that this person is going to leave, lead the community forward to the land of milk and honey, or, or, or is it is it just an, is it a gimmick to get them where they need to go? How much do they actually recognise the problems that you've described? Well, I think there, I think there is a, some genuine belief this is a model that that, that can work, and and hmm. and look, I'm not saying that you know that these people are deluded or, or what yeah, have sure. you. You know, they're, they're, they're very much wanting to see change, and they're, and they're working in a very difficult environment, and they're trying to interpret the kind of the kind of global. And um, institutional norms around responding to corruption in in a, in a messy kind of context, and there's always you know things that are that are difficult to translate. But there is this element in PNG amongst Papua New Guineans, um, and this is also a part of the research that I've been doing, that that very much blames the problem of corruption on Papua New Guinean citizens. And there was just an article, just a just a blog about two or three days ago, actually, that kind of reiterated this and kind of drew on my research and said, "Oh, look, you know, Grant's been writing about this is from a Papua New Guinean scholar. Um, Grant's been writing about corruption in, in Papua New Guinea, and you know, he noted in in you know in, in this in this paper that people have been focused on the politicians as corrupt, but actually the politicians aren't corrupt. We're corrupt." We are the, you know, we are the corrupt ones, and we need to repent. We have to think about Easter. This was just after Easter, to think of the, the you know, the the messages of God and all that type of thing, mm-hmm. in order to repent. So there is what I call, and what I, well, I, I anthropologists call, and I've, I've kind of drawn on on this work, a very much negative a, a, a relationship between negative nationalism and corruption in Papua New Guinea. And I'll give you an example. If you don't mind. Yeah, so sure. one of the parts of my research has been hanging around anti-corruption protesters. And so these anti-corruption protesters would get it into hot and dusty marketplaces of, of Port Moresby with the megaphone, the big banners, and sometimes they'd have church, you know, bands, you know, and, and they'd, they'd have three or four hundred people 
and they would list off their concerns about corruption in, in, in Papua New Guinea. They'd have petitions and, and the crowd would provide, you know, um, anecdotes and, and things like that. It was very lively and these things had gone up for eight hours and in, the, in the hot, humid um, sun in Port Moresby. And so I'd ha- kind of hang out and make notes and, and record these. And one of the key thing, themes that came out in these protests was a, a kind of a moral hierarchy of, and, and this is paraphrasing um, one of the protest leaders who said, you know, we know that, that Australians and, Australian, uh, and, and white people are not corrupt because of the corruption perceptions index. They're on the top, right? And then we know that, you know, a, uh, the Asian people, they are generally okay, but then, but, but, but we think that they're probably often more corrupt than Papua New Guineans. Now, Papua New Guineans are more, more corrupt and we don't know how to address corruption. And we know this because of the corruption perceptions index. So what we need is we need for Australia and for other white countries to rule our country and <laughs> to take over our anti-corruption organisations. And funnily enough, that's actually what's happened. So the ICAC... Um, you did mention to Australians and a New Zealander, right? That's right. Have, 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 and and that's, this is something that happens across the Pacific in, in, um, in the court system. It's um, often foreign appoint, appointed judges. And the idea is, is that, you know, because in societies where everyone knows everyone, it's good to have somebody independent to come in uh, and do this. But what it means is that there is a, um, a romanticisation of the colonial past. There is this um, romantic notion that if the Australians know how to address corruption and, 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 you know, people in developed countries know how to address corruption, Papua New Guineans don't, and all they know how to do is to, um, is to contribute to it. And so it's a kind of a formal form of national negative nationalism because it kind of suggests that, you know, PNG is a, you know, very corrupt place and and people don't know you know how, how, how to how to address that and so I go into this in more detail in, a, in an article I've written um, about these uh, these these protesters but this is kind of the unintended consequences of anti-corruption work right and this is the message that the corruption perceptions index is very the lots of caveats that people give to the corruption perceptions index but this is how people can interpret it they can interpret it like, well, you know what, we we just know we're just not that good. We're very corrupt, and we've got the evidence, and so we need to kind of cede sovereignty around, particularly issues around corruption. And this is a very, you know, and and in the past when the Australian government was was administering administering the place, there was no corruption. It was great. We need to go back to those times. So it can be very negative. That's really interesting. I, I remember giving a, a lecture in China uh, six, seven years ago, back when we could go nice and easy to China before COVID, and talking about the, the CPI, and I was mentioning all the caveats and well, how it, it's more a teaching tool for me than anything else, I'm being brutally honest. And I mentioned where China was, and, and one person just said, what is wrong? You know, we, we should be right at the bottom. Right at the bottom. Corruption's everywhere. And I, I sort of said, well, you know... Um, there, there might be places that actually have more, you know, North Korea, anyone, um, and uh, and they were not having it. The, the, the China is, has got more corruption problems than anyone else. They'd never been out of China. Um, China was all they knew, but for them, th- there was a real feel that, 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 you know, this negative nationalism that you talk of there was was a thing. 
Now, what, what do we do with that moving forward then, Grant? I think it's really interesting that, that there's still non, uh, non-natives who are appointed to these highly significant positions. In terms of policy approaches, wh- where, where do you think PNG should go next? I mean, that's a big question. If you knew the answer to that, then you'd be a very rich man. But, but what, what, what's your inclination? How, how do countries in PNG's situation make progress? And what even yeah. is progress? Yeah, so I think that there is is some positive kind of movements coming out of the kind of the broader anti-corruption kind of scholarship around fighting corruption by not fighting corruption. I, I, I like that idea. Now, Karen and uh, Karen Pfeiffer and I have also um, written up a paper looking uh, from uh, looking at survey data, and we've found that people are far more likely to report corruption if if they're um, educated past a primary school level. So we need to be looking at looking at responding to corruption by also, you know, things like the fee-free education policy, which PNG has recently reintroduced, ensuring quality education in the in the country, training teachers and those types of things. Actually, a very important anti-corruption tool. But we've also found that you know strengthening anti-corruption institutions is of course important. So in the survey, people said, look, we you know, more highly people said, look, we would be more likely to report corruption, but that fell if people didn't trust that something would be done about corruption. So, so that, that really, so strengthening anti-corruption organisations is really important. And those organisations need to be seen to be bringing people to justice. And quite often that is not the case. As, 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 as you could well imagine in, in PNG. And the other thing is that I think we need to be looking at highlighting how people themselves could be, could be making connections between corruption that happens in faraway places, like, you know, the capital of, of Papua New Guinea, Waigani, where political decisions are made and what's going on in their local community. That's, that's another thing. So that's where the, the, the messaging comes in and, and making those connections because when I asked people what was the, you know, we go, I gave people a, a range of different scenarios about corruption and it was the, it, and when I said, oh, what was the most corrupt, most unacceptable, most harmful things to you? And in local rural areas, it was local things. It was, it was you know, drinking homebrew or prostitution. These types of things were considered far more corrupt than MPs engaging in dodgy deals. Um, that might have been worth many, many times more and had a much bigger impact. So I think we have to make that link. The final thing I'd say, and this is is that, look, anti-corruption initiatives are often premised on the idea that if you act in a moral way, you will be rewarded, right? If you don't engage in corruption, you will be rewarded. Now, people in Papua New Guinea, understandably, don't believe that. Because the state hasn't worked right, so so I think that the rather than saying to people right, don't act corruptly, report corruption, those types of things. I think it's a part of the, the puzzle. But another part of the puzzle is that we need to do development. We need to prove that, that the health facility will work as long as you abide by the principles of integrity and accountability and and crack down on corruption, those types of things. As as and the same is with the school and these types of these types of state institutions. And I think that, you know, development has to come first. There's one thing to change people's behaviour around, you know, around not engaging in corruption or keeping these things accountable. But we have to then prove the next step that services then come. And in a place where uh, service delivery, particularly in rural areas, is, is quite thin on the ground, 
then you know it's it's very hard to prove that yeah and if you've got a relative who's seriously ill it's no good me and you preaching about not being corrupt you want to get a doctor to them right and you will do what you need to do to get that doctor and that's that's a human a human response to a very real problem that's right. And, and when I, you know, when I talk to people, it's the marginalised, the most marginalised that are most likely to say, yes, we need to engage in some form of corruption to, to get state services. And, and so that's a really important kind of kind of element of it. The other thing I'd say just also is, is there is a, there is also something that's coming up in the research is this gender dimension. And the global corruption barometer mentions extortion as a question. It's just just started to, to look at sextortion. Which is a positive thing, and but there, we in in the case of Papua New Guinea, we still there's still lots that we don't know about the impacts of of corruption, and and responses to it, particularly by women. We know that women in both the public service, and this is from research that I've been involved in, and also citizens, women are far less likely to report corruption than men, and a part of that is because they don't. You know, there's only a small percentage of the of the police force, for example, that 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 are that are women. The the public service also is is generally dominated at the upper levels by men, and also women fear payback in in PNG. Uh, they fear that if they do dob somebody in, that you know they're going to get beaten up, or their families are going to get assaulted, or or something along those lines. So yeah, look, I think you know that gender dimension also is important. And there is a, a debate about, I mean, I, I don't know if this is a, a, a uniquely UK word, but snitching about talk about about sort of telling the authorities about somebody who's doing something wrong is seen as crossing a line, uh, a betrayal. In, in, and it's, it still exists even in the UK, whereas many other narratives would say it's, it's not snitching. It's actually doing the right thing. You know, if people are acting in a corrupt manner, then, then maybe reporting it would be good. I was going to ask you one, one last question on this, and it's a broader one, and it's about the international community and their relationship with PNG. In general, has the international community had a coherent sort of approach to trying to fight corruption in PNG, um, or has the international community's role in this actually been, been minimal? Yeah, look, I mean, anti-corruption and good governance programs have been at the forefront of uh, the Australian aid program and other, um, yeah. in, in particular, and Australia is the largest donor to, to PNG, so that that matters. I mean, it is called good governance because, you know, of the sensitivities around, sure. you know, calling things anti-corruption measures. Um, but so... The um, yeah, so there's so there's more spent on on good governance funding to PNG and Australian aid program than other sectors, and so it has a bit has it has been a priority. But there are also sensitivities. I think there is a kind of it has been for probably probably the last five or six years, and this has been increasing over time. But there's been a pushback. There's been uh, against kind of donor inter- interference, and and there've been more conversations over the last few years, I think, about sovereignty than perhaps there have been in the past. I think um, COVID has undermined and shaken that a a little bit. So donors are, you know, they're supporting um, civil society organisations. They provide technical assistance. Uh, There are provisions um, from the IMF, for example, to get the ICAC um, up and running as a condition of the loan so of of a recent loan to 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 Papua New Guinea. So donors are kind of pushing for this, but they also know they need to tread carefully, and this is particularly because of you know rising concerns from the West about China's role in the Pacific, and that you know that 
um, Pacific leaders, um, if they're pushed too much, too much, can you know uh, there is a fear that they they could you know align further with with China. So it's a bit of a, I suppose that there's a, there's a bit of a balancing act that they that they face, even though you know good governance and anti-corruption reform is is a priority for them. Mm. No, that's, that's really interesting. So, in terms of research on the region, so on PNG and and in other territories in in that hood, um, and this is a question we often ask our, our participants on this podcast. What do you think academics need to to think about next? Is there anything specific that you think that, that there's a bit of a dark spot there, or perhaps there's a broader story about what academics need to look at to try and help um, uh, um, those in PNG make you know make steps in in in, in the right direction? Yeah, look, there has been more research in, on corruption by various uh, corruption and organised crime, I should say, in the Pacific region over the, the past five years, and and so interest in it has been has been on on the rise. And I've definitely seen, seen more articles on the region. I, I find it quite interesting to follow from afar. I'm not, in, not an expert in the region at all, but I've noticed there's been an been an increase there, which is it's got to be good, right? Yeah, look, it is, and it's an outcome really of this, you know, this geopolitical tussle between China and the, mm. and, the and the West. There's more resources that are flowing into the into the Pacific, with Western countries concerned that you know China is going to get a, a real foothold in in the, in the region. So that's ramped up interest um, from journalists, from academics, and and from NGOs, think tanks who are starting to to. To really pour into the to the region in terms of the in, in terms of the the focus, I, I look. I think that there is still so, something has changed in the Pacific that I think really needs to be understood politically. And I've talked about you know um, the role of communities and and the role of donors in terms of responding to corruption. But Pacific, one thing that's interesting that we need to know more about is that Pacific Island leaders themselves have been leading over the last five or six years, responses, and they're looking for a, a Pacific response to corruption. Now, about 20, 15, 20 years ago, when I first started doing this, this research, the corruption and the anti-corruption agenda was very much seen as a Western-imposed program that de- uh, developing countries like PNG and, and others in the Pacific were signing up to kind of, you know, against their will. Now we're seeing initiatives like the Tiawina Vision, which is a um, response from Pacific Island political leaders themselves highlighting how fighting corruption needs to be on the agenda for Pacific Island countries and regional institutions. And we're seeing more and more concern and meetings being pushed by regional leaders. And I think we need to to, to really understand what the potential of this is. On the one hand, it is a very positive step forward for, for you know, acknowledging the problem of corruption and trying to address it. But on the other hand, it's very easy for, for these statements and also for the instituting of anti-corruption agencies like the ICAC in, in Papua New Guinea or in Solomon Islands and in, in, in Fiji and other kind of agencies that are starting to be set up across the across the region. It's very easy for politicians to just say, we're doing something about corruption. Just look at the ICAC or this this new agency that we've that we've developed and and just get on with business as usual. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think that there needs to be more kind of critical analysis going on about, you know, what these new push for anti-corruption agreements and laws and institutions means in the Pacific and, and you know how it might be able to be harnessed for actual meaningful change. 
So I guess a bit more depth, really. And I guess that, that, that you're an anthropologist by training, right? Uh, and, and I guess the, the, the real contribution of anthropologists in this area is, is about the depth, the depth of knowledge about how, how plans for change, how programmes that are hopefully going to improve public policy need, need to link in with the actual lives of people on the ground, their experiences, their feelings, their approaches, their attitudes. Yeah, um, look, I, I um, actually did my um, did my PhD uh, in uh, um, um, as a political geographer, and I, you know, it's oh, very okay. similar. Political yeah. geography is very, you know, similar kind of field to anthropology. Very much, we draw on multiple methods, but uh, ethnography is one of them. And so I've been drawing on on, on that, but I also, you know, do surveys and, and, and other things. But um, yeah, so as as a as a I suppose a, as a political geographer, I'm interested in space, and I'm interested in how you know understandings of corruption and responses to it change across space. And I'm you know I'm, I'm interested in not only what that means for the the differences between what rural people think about corruption and respond to it because they do in their own ways. It's often unacknowledged, um, and how that differs to urban people within within countries, but also how the, the, the kind of the network of corruption and anti-corruption works across the region. So I'll just give you an example of that. So, so in Solomon Islands, for example, they introduced an, um, an independent commission against corruption. And a lot of people were saying, oh, it was unexpected. No, people didn't think that it was going to be established. They were very cynical. There was a lot of cynicism. But... I, I looked at some of the reasons as to why and how it came came about, and one of the kind of the, the key things that came out of that research was the importance of transnational networks for developing, you know, anti-corruption responses. So it's not just international organisations that come in and kind of tell governments what to do, but there's a there's a whole bunch of people within the country, within different countries, of place, you know, the um, policymakers took took um, trips to Malaysia, to East Timor and other and other places. There was this real network of, of different agencies that were involved in developing the legislation and, and then corralling the uh, the MPs into actually and, and convincing them into, into passing it. So yeah, I look I think that um that in particular look you know looking looking beyond the kind of the state institutions, uh, political ge- geographer is, is is really important for understanding change. That, that, I hope that answers your question. I'm not yeah, it totally does. Sure <laughs> in many ways, it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really good answer because it's a, it's a pretty obvious mm-hmm. point. But my goodness me, does it get ignored quite a lot um, in, in terms of, you know, patterns about what might be done to change uh, political behaviour. That the, and, and I think political geographers have got an awful lot to contribute there. Grant, thanks ever so much for taking the time to speak to us. We really appreciate it. Best of luck moving forward with your research. I hope, I hope the rain relents in Canberra. I can't believe I'm feeling sorry for an Australian in terms of weather. That that's just feel, that, that, that feels all wrong coming from my British perspective, where we imagine it's always sunny in Australia. But um, thanks again, being serious, for, for taking the time to chat to us. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll hopefully speak to you again soon. Great. Thanks a lot, Dan. I really enjoyed it.